Welcome to today's Church Central podcast. We're a family of churches across Birmingham. To find out more, head to churchcentral.org.uk. I recognise for many of us, if not all of us, uh, there are some challenges even being in this room right now. Um, I'm not sure if I really want to put this out here being recorded, but uh, so far this morning I've been to the toilet four times. I'm so nervous. Um, I walked into the room and overjoyed to see everyone, but at the same time dreaded being asked how I'm doing because I just don't know how I would answer that question. All the things kind of going through my mind over even this last week, let alone the last year and a half. And uh, I guess the the, the joy of seeing all of you and when we're worshipping, I uh, find myself surprised in terms of feeling quite emotional. Um, and I don't know if others felt that, uh, that the joy of being here, but also uh, a bit of anxiety as well. And if I'm feeling all of that, uh, I'm guessing maybe there may be one or two others in the room who are as well. So thank you for being here. Thank you for battling through all of the range of emotions uh, to be back together again. Now, I'm guessing there's probably a similar range of emotions and feelings around our view of the church itself as well. Uh, You may uh, right now be full of faith for all that God is going to do among us in the weeks, months, years to come, or you may be struggling right now to see the purpose of the church at all. Like, I don't even know what the church is. Uh, I kind of feel a bit disconnected from it all. Really can't see the point anymore. None of which is surprising because many of us have kind of been in this survival mode for so incredibly long now that I think it's understandable that we would have forgotten about the potency and the potential of the church when it's functioning at its very best. It's no surprise that uh, over these months, we might have just lost sight of the power of living radically for Jesus together in the world. And so, as we begin opening things up again, I just want to use this morning and the next couple of weeks really as an opportunity to re-examine the foundations of what it means for us as a church together to be radical disciples of Jesus, particularly around the call to love. By way of context, I want to read um, a brief account, I was going to say a brief account, it's actually three pages uh, of an account of the incredible rise of the early church, followed by some very familiar and incredibly famous words from Jesus in John chapter 13. First of all, here is an extract from a book published by the Barna Group. Uh, it's called Sacred Roots. It says this, the growth of the early church is arguably the most remarkable sociological movement in history. The numbers are staggering. In AD 40, there were roughly a thousand Christians in the Roman Empire, but by AD 350, almost 30 million. 
a remarkable 53% of the population had converted to the Christian faith. Sociologist Rodney Stark has spent much of his career researching how this explosive growth happened. In The Triumph of Christianity, he writes of Jesus. He was a teacher and miracle worker who spent nearly all of his brief ministry in the tiny and obscure province of Galilee, often preaching to outdoor gatherings. A few listeners took up his invitation to follow him, and a dozen or so became his devoted disciples. But when he was executed by the Romans, his followers probably numbered no more than several hundred. How is it possible for this obscure Jewish sect to become the largest religion in the world. When you see who Jesus chose to found the church, it seems even more implausible. The disciples were untrained men who failed so, as often as they thrived. Peter kept returning to fishing. James and John wanted to call down fire on the very people Jesus came to save. Thomas doubted, Judas betrayed. They were selfish, contentious, and they abandoned Jesus at his moment of greatest need. And yet, from these humble roots, baptized in the power of Pentecost, the early church grew to become not only the largest, but the most influential community in the Roman Empire. All of this raises significant questions. What on earth could have compelled half an empire to convert? How could a Jewish political rebel crucified on a Roman cross become the savior of the empire that killed him? The early church leaders didn't have the things we now consider essential for our faith. They didn't have official church buildings, vision statements, or core values. They had no social media, radio broadcasts, or celebrity pastors. They didn't even have the completed New Testament. Christ followers were often deeply misunderstood, persecuted, and some gave their lives for their faith. Yet they loved and they served, and they prayed and they blessed, and slowly, over hundreds of years, they brought the empire to its knees. They did it through love. All of which is really the outworking of Jesus' command to each and every one of his followers, found in John 13, verses 34 and 35. Jesus says, so now... I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Now, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at how to live as radical disciples of Jesus, outwards in our love for the world around us, upwards in our love for God. But this morning, I want to begin by focusing inwards and homing in 
on the way we're to love each other in our church family. You see, I think we've been so impacted by how relationships are in the culture around us that it is a real challenge to view relationships the way that Jesus calls us to. It's like that the pressure and the pain of the last year and all the things going on around us has led to this alarming escalation of criticism and judgmentalism and blame and suspicion, anger, negativity, and not just out there in the world. Now, I've lost count of the number of stories I've heard just over the last few months of people leaving churches over petty disagreements, whole churches splitting, Christian marriages breaking up. And before we kind of bemoan the state of other churches, really, it all flows from the unforgiveness and the resentment and the insecurity and the harshness that probably all of us carry in our hearts, at least some of the time. If we're honest, we've probably all thought critical thoughts about someone in the church, maybe even this morning. And so I want you to listen again to these famous words of Jesus in John 13, and I want you to hear them with the bite and the challenge and the provocation that I think Jesus intended when he first uttered them. Jesus says, I'm giving you not a new suggestion, I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Now, it's important to stress that although I think we perhaps tend to read the New Testament through an individualistic lens. It's actually written to believers together. And so whenever you hear the word you, uh, like in the passage we've just read, it's unlikely to be aimed at you as an individual. No, it's you in relationship with others. And when we read our favorite bits of the book of Acts and see thousands added to the church in a day. And when we stumble across accounts like the one we've just read of the gospel spreading throughout the world like wildfire, I think the tendency can be to pray for the sudden spectacular work of God to break in without realizing that all the time it was against this backdrop of believers knotted together in relationship. It's not just a few spiritual superheroes like Paul and Peter striding on at the front. It's actually all of these people living together in Christian community, building this web of kingdom relationships right across the major cities of the Roman Empire that ultimately enabled the movement of Jesus to take traction and slowly subvert the surrounding culture. As Jesus predicted, it was their love for one another that proved to the world that they were 
his disciples. And the gospel was different too and way more powerful than any other message or worldview. Just let it sink in. Jesus is saying that the proof of genuine discipleship and therefore our effectiveness as a church isn't how much we quote the Bible and it's not how much we pray, although for the record those things are important. He says the proof is primarily in the way we love one another and that our love must be marked by the way he has loved us. Let's just pause there for a moment. I want us to think about how Jesus has loved us. I want to spend a few moments just reflecting on what his love for us is like. And this might be awkward for some of you. Some of you will love this, but can you turn to two or three people around you and just answer that question? How has Jesus loved us? What is his love for us like? And if you're not near anyone, uh, break the ice, dive in close to someone else, and perhaps others be looking out for others as well. Let's, let's show love by drawing others in. I'm going to give you 90 seconds. How has Jesus loved us? Go. Okay. Uh, assuming you came up with some stuff, and from where I'm standing, it sounded like you were saying some great stuff. That is at least part of the way we are to love each other. Now, if we need any further ammunition or help in working out what this looks like in practice, the Apostle Paul spells it out in Ephesians 4. Here's what he says. I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. If you have been called by God, always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you've been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, in all, and living through all. Really, Paul couldn't make it any clearer that in the heavenly realms right now, we have everything in common. He labors this point that in Christ... We are one. That is the theological reality. We are united. And yet, so often, I think our relationships can look little different than those in the culture around us, which means that this is a massive challenge for us. It doesn't come easy, but we've got to fight for love in our relationships. If you like, we're to actualize in our relationships with one another what we know to be theologically true. Listen, Jesus doesn't call us to be consumers flitting from one church to another. No, he calls us to commit to love one another for the long term, come what may. Because at the end of the day, 
The church isn't defined primarily by the quality of its meetings or its programs or its notices or its worship or its preaching or its kids' work or even the coffee, as important as that is. Ultimately, it's defined by the quality of its people and their love for one another. Now, of course, we've all got our different views and opinions on how things should be done. We all have our own views on the merits or demerits of mask wearing and vaccines and social distancing. We all have our own preferences about music style and length of sermons and meeting in larger groups or smaller groups. And really, just to help you manage your expectations for these next few months, I want you to know there are things that are going to happen and decisions that will be made that I can guarantee you're not going to agree with. I can also guarantee that people will let you down and the church will probably disappoint you at times. But through it all, can we resolve, can we determine to be stubborn in our love and commitment for one another nonetheless. Because let's be honest, we're not going to get everything right. We are going to make mistakes, just like you're going to make some mistakes and you're not going to get everything right. But instead of judging and criticizing and walking out, Can we lay all of that stuff aside and resolve that we are still going to love one another? Can we, in the words of Paul, make every effort to always be humble and gentle, to be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults? Because, quite frankly... We're going to need each other to get through the things that lie ahead of us. What's more, we've got an enemy, the devil, who knows that we are most vulnerable when we are isolated and alone. And so he's going to be out to drive a wedge between us so he can then pick us off one by one. Please, let's not fall for his schemes Let's fight for one another and not fight against one another. If we're going to cope with all the challenges that undoubtedly are waiting just around the corner, we need to press into relationships, not push people away. And so, to make this really practical, I want to close this out in the time that's remaining for me by just giving a bit of depth and definition to what this might look like in practice. And inspired by Rich the other week, who had, was it seven, seven ways to sing or seven explanations of the importance of singing? At least 14. Well, I'm going to go short. I'm going to give you a mere six quick-fire thoughts on the kind of friendships that we need to cultivate in the weeks and months to come. So here we go. First of all, In the days ahead, we're going to need friends who will risk for us. 
In Romans 16, Paul writes this about Priscilla and Aquila. Give my greetings to Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in the ministry of Christ Jesus. In fact, they once risked their lives for me. I'm thankful to them, and so are all the Gentile churches. Priscilla and Aquila were this force of nature. They were this remarkable husband and wife team who ran around serving God, strengthening the church. They helped Apollos, they worked alongside Paul, and they were willing to risk their lives. They risked their resources, their reputation, their time, their hearts, their very lives. I think we could all do with friends like that, couldn't we? The question is, are you willing to be that kind of friend to others? Are you willing to risk for people in the church in the months ahead? And more to the point, what are you willing to risk? Your time, your money, your energy. What conscious decisions are you going to make in the days ahead to sacrifice for the advance of the cause of Jesus? We need friends and we need to be friends who risk for one another. Second thing we need is friends who will refresh us. There's this character in the New Testament. Uh, He doesn't get a whole lot of airtime, but he was essential to the mission of Jesus. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul writes this, May the Lord show special kindness to Onesiphorus and all his family, because he often visited and encouraged, or as some versions put it, refreshed me. He was never ashamed of me because I was in chains. When he came to Rome, he searched everywhere until he found me. May the Lord show him special kindness on the day of Christ's return. And you know very well how helpful he was in Ephesus. At a point where Paul felt abandoned and isolated, this guy, Onesiphorus, searched everywhere until he found him so that he could come alongside him and speak life to him. Henri Nouwen says this, When we honestly ask ourselves which person in our lives mean the most to us, we often find that it is those who, instead of giving advice, solutions, or cures, have chosen rather to share our pain and touch our wounds with a warm and tender hand. The friend who can be silent with us in a moment of despair or confusion, who can stay with us in an hour of grief and bereavement, who can tolerate not knowing, not curing, not healing, and face with us the reality of our powerlessness. That is a friend who cares. And that's what Onesiphorus was like. He refreshed the Apostle Paul's spirit. Here's my appeal to you. In the months to come, can we be people who search others out when they're going through a tough time simply to refresh their spirit? When we see someone who's struggling, let's not rush in with advice 
Let's try and figure out how to pour life into them. Let's look to lift one another up whenever we see others who are flagging. And then link with this, thirdly, we need friends who will encourage us. Proverbs 18 speaks of the power of the tongue to both bring life and death. We need to speak words that bring life to others. As Paul instructs us in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 11, encourage each other and build each other up. I think this is a verse that needs to be underlined because it is so easy to be critical right now. We're we're this culture of armchair cynics, aren't we? We sit back kind of pointing out the flaws of people who, in all honesty, they're they're trying to do their best, but we just criticize. We uh, point the finger at them rather than doing our best to encourage them and build them up. Can we all agree? Life is hard. So we could all do with a bit of encouragement, couldn't we? To quote John Maxwell, encouragement is oxygen for the soul. It takes very little effort to give it, but the return in others is huge. Let me ask you, when you walk into a room... What spirit are you bringing? Are you looking for what God's doing? Or are you looking for what's not happening? To put it bluntly, are you bringing oxygen to others? Or are you sucking it out? Let's be people who always seek to overcome discouragement with encouragement. Fourthly, How are you doing? Nearly there. Only three more to go. Fourthly, we need friends who will fight for us. Philippians 2 verse 25 says this. Meanwhile, I thought I should send Epaphroditus. I mean, there's some great names going on this morning. Uh, If if you're looking for inspiration for a name for a pet or a family member, some inspiration here. Epaphroditus, great name. Uh, I thought I should send Epaphroditus back to you. He's a true brother, co-worker and fellow soldier, and he was your messenger to help me in my need. Epaphroditus was like a soldier willing to fight for others. And whenever we're dealing with challenges or obstacles, I think we need friends like that who will roll in, stand alongside and fight. People who will fight in prayer, like a guy called Epaphras who crops up in Colossians 4. Paul says of him, Epaphras always prays earnestly for you, asking God to make you strong and perfect, fully confident that you're following the whole will of God. I can assure you that he prays hard for you. You know, sometimes people are so beaten down, they don't have the strength to lift up their hands. Let's be people who gather around, contend for them, fighting for them in prayer. Fifthly, we need friends who are fiercely loyal. Fiercely loyal. Part of the challenge for us So I think we can unthinkingly just drift, as we've seen already, into relating with one another in the church in the way the culture around us does. And so we perhaps have a tendency to 
love those who are like us. We love those who agree with us. We love those who are at a similar stage to us. But as soon as there's a difference, we ghost people out. We blank them. We break the relationship. We move away. It's like our culture knows little or nothing about loyalty. We break up with our friends. We unfollow. We move whenever we want. We get married and then we walk out the moment it gets too hard. We are not a people trained to keep our commitments with stubborn loyalty. But thank goodness our call is to Jesus, not the culture around us. Jesus says this in Luke 6, if you only love those who love you, why should you get credit for that? Even sinners love those who love them. Just think for a moment. Are there times when perhaps you have turned your heart away from Jesus? Times when you've fallen back into sin and Jesus has come and got you. He's refused to let you drift away. His commitment to love you is stubborn and unrelenting. And we are called to mirror this in our relationships with one another. Jesus says, you've got to have a different kind of love. We need this fierce commitment to love one another, this stubborn loyalty to one another, even when we disagree and have our differences. And then lastly, we need friends who will tell us the truth. There are a lot of communities out there that will build you up and even flatter you and tell you what you want to hear. There are plenty of other communities that are encouraging and supporting until you disagree with them. But what we're talking about here is a community who are willing to tell you the hard things. Look what it says in the book of Proverbs in chapter 27. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy merely multiplies kisses. Now look, I'm not suddenly opening the door for a whole wave and barrage of criticism. That isn't the spirit of this talk. I'm not saying just get everything off your chest now. But nonetheless, we do all need people in our lives who will come alongside us in love and speak the truth to us. We all need friends who will help us see our blind spots, speaking the truth in love, whatever it costs. And so, as I draw to a close, as we think about what's going to define us as a church as we move forward, it's got to be our relationships with one another. God is about a work knitting us together. But our part in all of this is certainly not passive. We're to be willing to risk what we have for one another. We need to be willing to refresh each other's spirits. We've got to look for ways to encourage those who are struggling. We've got to step in and fight for those strength, whose strength is flagging. We have to be fiercely loving, stubbornly loyal to one another. And we need to be willing to tell the truth in love, no matter what it costs. 
As I look ahead and consider the future of our church, I think those are some of the things that will cause us to really stand out. And this is one of the keys to us transforming the people around us. One of the ways people are going to meet with Jesus is they're going to get caught up in this network of relationships and end up asking the question, why are you so committed to one another? I mean, it makes no logical sense. Why do you show each other such love? Listen, what I'm talking about here is so much more than us merely tolerating one another. Now, this is a countercultural love, loving others as Jesus has loved us. And, for the record, this is way more than me merely trying to get you to show up here faithfully on a Sunday morning. I'm talking about showing up with the right spirit and then working this out through the rest of the week. And as Johnny pointed out earlier, really the obvious place is in and through our community groups. Uh, Just to say, I know for so many of us, uh, our community groups have been a real lifeline over the last year and a half. My appeal would be, as things get busier again, don't cut off that lifeline Actually, dig deeper in. We're going to need each other even more in the days to come. And if you're not in a community group, grab Johnny, grab myself, email hello at churchcentral.org.uk and we'll get you connected into a community group this week. Uh, I promise. That's quite the guarantee. Or if you're in a group and it's not quite working for you, it might be slightly more awkward, uh, but feel free to... Uh, have a chat with me, and uh, especially if it's my group, uh, and I'll, uh, I'll see what we can do for you. But we need to dive into community. And meetings like this, it's great in a crowd, but we need smaller context where we can really find one another. In short, I want us to be a church of stubbornly loyal relationships, casting this net of people who are refreshed, who fight and risk and love and encourage and tell the truth, pulling others in to encounter Jesus like never before. When others are added to us, I want them to grow up in a healthy culture of love. And so, well, that being said, can we commit together to building a relational robustness in our church family that enables us to prosper and thrive no matter what comes in the year ahead? Will we be people who restore broken relationships so that we can continue to love the way Christ has called us to love? And very practically, if you've got a broken relationship with someone in the church right now, would you take urgent steps even today to repair it? Perhaps you need to be willing to be humble make the first move and ask for forgiveness. Or maybe you need to forgive somebody else. Perhaps they don't know it, but you've pushed them away in your heart. It's like you want nothing to do with them. You're acting in many ways just like the pagan world around us acts. Please sort it out and urgently. Because this is a time 
that calls for a counter-cultural community who are defined by their love for one another. So that's result to be people who are committed together to love each other just as Christ has loved us.